Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is good to come together and uh, praise his name. He always deserves our praise. This day is no exception. Today is a special day. You know what it is? Yeah, Halloween. Yeah, that's true. But that's not what I'm talking about. It's Reformation Day. Did you know this? <laughs> Probably not, right? The day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which sparked the Protestant Reformation. Uh, now, the church has historically divided for not so good reasons, but going back to that story, it was a, meant to be a recovery of the true gospel, the heart of the message of Christ. And we're a part of that tradition at Chapel Street Church. So when you eat your candy tonight and do your Halloween traditions, remember, it's Reformation Day you're celebrating, uh, not Halloween. Although you can still have the candy, I suppose. That's all right. Um, Martin Luther wouldn't mind. So we're glad that you're with us today to worship him and to celebrate. Let's, let's bow and ask God to speak to us through his word. Jesus, we do want to return and recover and be reminded of the truth of who you are, the center of your gospel, because we drift and we get distracted and we forget. So we ask you now as we open your word to remind us, we pray this in your name, amen. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked by a friend uh, in our church to open a civic ceremony with an invocation, to do a, the opening prayer at a I won't get into the details about that, but they asked, it's a fairly important civic uh, ceremony. They said, would you pray and give the invocation? I said that I would be happy to do that. I want to serve the community. And so I got uh, an email thanking me for my willingness to pray with a list of instructions. Among the instructions was, please don't mention the name of Jesus in the prayer. I thought, ooh, that's going to be rough for me. I'm not sure I can do that. Can I say Jesus? Like, how do I get around this, you know? <laughs> So I emailed back politely and talked to my friend. Hey, listen, I'm, I, won't, I, won't be, I won't be weird and I won't be, you know, uh, 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 offensive, but I, really I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm going to mention Jesus' name. Well, you know, we'd rather get him and haw back and forth. Finally, they were sort of like non-negotiable on this point. And I said, well, then I'm probably the wrong guy. You can find someone else to pray, um, you know, and wish you well. And I've thought about that encounter a lot over the years. Um, what is it about the name of Jesus that makes such a reaction, such a dividing line for people. You, you could have a conversation in a local coffee shop about God in general, and people would have opinions, but they probably wouldn't be as visceral a reaction as it is if you mentioned Jesus' name. You could talk about, you know, Vishnu and Muhammad and Buddha and the Dalai Lama, and people are going to have opinions, maybe strong opinions. But my guess is they wouldn't be as extreme reaction as when you mention the name of Jesus. Why? Why is that? Well, for one thing, it's not new. The name of Jesus has been causing reactions among people since the time he walked the earth in the flesh. And it's still true today. When Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, people responded. He was a bit of a dividing line, wasn't he? There were opinions, strong opinions. Some wanted to kill him and eventually did. So from the first century to the 21st century, the name of Jesus calls, it's controversial to a degree. You could make the case that Christianity is really just coming to grips with the person and the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's the central question that's at issue here and at stake in this text from Mark. We're in a series called Following the King. 
looking at Mark's gospel about who Jesus is, which is the central thing that's happening throughout Mark's story. It's an unfolding revelation of who Jesus really is. And through miracles and through encounters and teachings, he's slowly, uh, we're joining the disciples in their slow journey to figure out who Jesus really is. It's easy for us to, I think, be a bit judgmental on the disciples, to look back through history, through the resurrection and through the cross and say, what's wrong with those guys? Why are they so slow on the take? Well, sometimes we are too, to really understand who Jesus is. So that's what we're doing here. There's this big reveal moment in the passage we're going to look at today. It's kind of a crescendo of the first half of Mark's gospel. If, if he's been slowly unfolding and teaching them by walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 and the different healings, there's a critical moment in uh, discovering who Jesus is in the passage we're going to be examining today. And, and also, quite a bit of confusion then and now. So let's look at Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. You can follow in your own Mark journals or your Bibles or on the screen. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of of his father with the holy angels. I'm going to guess there are some parts of that long text that are familiar to you. Even if you've never read them, you've heard them, like take up your cross and Peter's confession. Who do people say that I am? This this account of Peter's confession of Christ is in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's a reason for that. It's a crucial moment. And for the disciples and for us, frankly, and, and where this takes place is something that you might not immediately pick up on, but it's, it's critical to our understanding. Jesus, he's not doing anything randomly. Everything he's doing has, has deep intention behind it. He's got three years with these men who have chosen to follow him, three years to train them, develop them, and get them to discover and understand who he is before they're unleashed to spread the good news of the gospel. And, and, and he's doing everything with intention including picking the place where he asks them what. You might have noticed in the text that they're in the region called Caesarea Philippi. That's in the far northeastern part of Israel of the day. Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea named for, can you guess? Caesar, Rome's emperor, the power in the world at that time. Philippi named for Herod Philip. Remember Herod the Great in the story of the birth of Jesus? The one who uh, wanted to kill all the babies under two years old because he wanted to stop this after he met with the Magi. Remember that? Herod the Great? Herod had sons who ruled after his death. 
Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Philip is in the north. So there's a town, which is kind of the capital of that region, named Caesarea for Rome, Philippi for Herod Philip. And in that region, uh, in that place, the, the city, the ruins of that city, it, it, it was a, a location that had a long history of pagan worship. Baal worship in the Old Testament and pagan deities in the New Testament in the times of the Greco-Roman era. You'll see an image here. My wife and I had a chance to travel there. Uh, in, the, in the background, I don't know if you can see this or not. Can you see those niches carved in the rock? Even if you can't, I get to use my funny, fun pen. Right here, right here, these niches carved in the rock. Those are places where pagan idols were placed. The idols are long gone, but the rock niches are still there. This, this section right here, this big cave, they refer to that as the gates of hell or the mouth of Hades. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus has the same encounter in Matthew's version of this, and he tells Peter after his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says it right in front of the symbolic representation of that, the mouth of hell, the gates of Hades. In the foreground, this pillar is to an ancient temple, the Greek god Pan. Pantheism, Pan worship is going on there. So you, and above, you, what you can't see are the, is the rubble of ruins of a white marble uh, shrine temple built to worship Caesar. So think about it for a minute. Jesus takes his disciples to this place filled with dramatic symbolism. A place literally on the cusp between two worlds, the powers of darkness and the power of God, the political kingdom of Caesar and Herod and the kingdom of God, with, with symbols all around of false gods, pagan idols. And in this location, he asks them, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? It's, it's an incredible location for this conversation. But the disciples had to be wondering, what are we doing here? Why would he bring us here? No self-respecting faithful Jew goes to this place. They're about to find out. Let's look at verses 27 through 30 again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the buzz? What's the word on the street? What are the crowds saying? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Let's talk about that for a minute. What's going on here? There was a lot of opinion about Jesus at that time in that region. There were, the crowds had opinions, some scholarly opinions based on partial truths, some made-up opinions, some popular opinions, some rumor. But there are lots of notions about Jesus. Some said John the Baptist. He had been beheaded by Herod Philip's brother, Herod Antipas, but they thought he'd come back to life, some were saying. And Jesus was the come-back-to-life version of John the Baptist. That was a rumor spreading around. So, like, you, there's conspiracies that spread around today. There were in the first century as well. Some say, oh, it's, it's, it's Elijah because the, the Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah. Well, that actually was John the Baptist. But some are saying Jesus is the forerunner of the Messiah. Some say one of the prophets, a new prophet. There had been a prophetic silence for 400 years, so one of the prophets. They all have opinions based on some corrupted version of what they read, they knew from the Old Testament based on popular notion, based on rumor, based on personal preference, but none of them are right. Now, it sounds like a weird ancient time, but I'm going to ask you, is it different today? There's a lot of opinions about Jesus, and none of them are quite right. There are even opinions in here about who Jesus is. You have some. You have ideas. At best, your idea of Jesus is incomplete. At worst, it's just wrong. Let me read to you a couple that I, I jotted down here that some cultural myths of Jesus today. You might recognize some of these. There's the American patriot Jesus. 
who's against tax increases and against activist judges and is for family values, owning firearms, and turns the map from blue to red. Some of you laugh and some of you squirm. There's the left-wing Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and the anti-capitalist mascot for social causes of the day. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature, finding God within, listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There is Life Coach Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you, helps you find your center so you can become a better version of you, gives you the 10 steps to live your best life now. There's Guru Jesus, who's best buds with Buddha, Vishnu, the Dalai Lama, and Deepak Chopra. There is Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for those who aren't as open-minded as we are. There's Touchdown Jesus, I know this one, who helps athletes run faster, jump higher than non-Christians, and de- determines the outcomes of Super Bowls, but apparently hates the Bears. There's Gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot with a sash and looks very Euro. There's Suburban Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars and buy a boat or a second home. There's Revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's Defense Attorney Jesus, I know you know this one, who gets you off the hook when you're in trouble and you keep him on rotator until you need him again. And there is the ever popular today post-church Jesus, who's down with deconstructing the church of your parents and lets you worship him from your couch or however you want, or not at all. He doesn't mind too much. You chuckle a little bit, and that's intentional. I wanted to write them a little tongue-in-cheek. But the truth is, right in this room and all around us are all kinds of half-baked, incomplete, and wrong ideas of Jesus. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. That's the reason Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And what's interesting to me is he spends no time at all deconstructing the false notions of Jesus. He doesn't say to the disciples, let me tell you why I'm not John the Baptist. Let me tell you why I'm not Elijah. Let me explain to you why I'm not one of the prophets. He doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He asks them, but who do you say that I am? That is the question. He takes the theoretical and makes it deeply personal. Okay, that's out there. Who do you say I am? Friends, you can be in church all your life and not get that one right. It's a question for each one of us. Who do you say he is? Who is he to you? Peter answers him. Peter's always the first one to speak up. Peter says what everybody else is thinking most of the time, which gets him in trouble. We'll see that later. You are the Christ. This phrase, the Christ, by the way, in case you're wondering, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Christos, meaning, come from the, the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning anointed one. The, the one, the deliverer, the king, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. Peter grew up knowing the stories about Messiah, the Christ, like a good Jewish boy. And he responds immediately, you're the one. You're him. Here's how Matthew puts it in Matthew's gospel. This is Peter's confession, first of all. Sorry, go to the confession. And then Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus has something very important here, which is going to come back in just a moment. He says, Peter, you're right. And you didn't get that idea on your own. You didn't think your way there with human logic that was revealed to you. But as right as Peter is with, his, with the answer, he's about to discover how wrong he is about understanding what that means. What, what, what are the implications of him being the Christ? This brings us to what happens next, which is really astounding and confusing. That's why we'll call it the confusion. There's the confession, Peter's confession, the right answer, and the confusion. It's possible to say the right things and have no idea what that means. You think that happens in here? It's possible for you to grow up knowing the church answers, say the right stuff, but have no understanding of what the mission of God really is. Peter gets the right answer, but he has really very little understanding. Look at verses 31 to 33. And he began to teach them. That's important. This is a time of instruction. That the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning aside and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is going to teach them something. And he says, here's what I want to teach you. I must suffer. Now think about it for a minute. Peter has just said, you're the Christ. Jesus goes, exactly, and I have to die. What? What? Die? Jesus, the Messiah, is to conquer, not be killed. You're the victor, not the victim. You're to be worshipped and welcomed, not rejected. What are you talking about, die? It's hard for us to get our minds around how ridiculous this would have sounded, how completely wrong this would have sounded to the disciples. Die? What do you mean die? I, I know who you are, he said. I know who you are. You're the one that Jeremiah said is the righteous branch. You're the one Isaiah said would have the government on his shoulders, and of the increase of your kingdom there would be no end. I know who you are. You're him. You're the one. And Jesus goes precisely, and I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. And Peter says, Jesus, come with me for a second. Let me explain to you the Old Testament, Jesus. Like, how crazy is this, right? Let me, Jesus, this is bad for morale. Stop talking this way. It's bringing people down. He says he rebukes him. It's the same word used of, in Greek of Jesus when he casts out a demon. It's strong language. How, what's wrong with Peter? Well, you know, one minute, I get the right answer. The next minute, Jesus calls him Satan. I've thought about this. I've had God say to me through his word, through good friends, through the voice of the spirit in my heart, many hard things. Many of you have as well. I've heard God rebuke me. I've heard him confront me about my sin and my selfishness and my pride. And I've, I've experienced that. Maybe you have as well. I've yet to hear God call me Satan. One minute, God revealed this to you, Peter. The next minute, you're Satan. What is going on? Well, in a way, I kind of relate to Peter. How, how many of you would say, I'm kind of like that? I can one minute be worshiping God. I feel like I want what he wants for my life. I feel connected to him. I feel a sense of his spirit and his love. And I want my life to be lived for his glory. And the next minute, do something or say something that totally contradicts 
the law and the will of God. Is that just me? Jesus says, I must suffer, I must die. He's not saying, hey, here's, this is unfortunate, but here's how it's going to play out. He's saying this, he, he sits down to teach them, this must happen. There's no other way. Why? Why must the Son of Man suffer? Why must the Son of Man die? We could spend another month worth of sermons on this, but let me give you just three reasons in brief. Number one, the Old Testament predicted it. Go read Isaiah chapter 53, sometimes referred to as the lost chapter because many Orthodox Jews ignore that chapter, but it's profound. It speaks to the suffering of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. Prophesies in detail about his suffering. By his stripes, we are healed. Number two, the justice of God required it. Read Hebrews chapter 9 through Hebrews chapter 10, and you get this beautiful theological, spiritual description of what, what sin requires to be forgiven and set free. When God forgives your sin, he doesn't wink, wink, sweep it under the rug, pretend like it never happened, like let's just pretend, let's just ignore that. There's a payment. Sin is serious business. And it, the payment is in blood, but the blood of bulls and goats, we're told, will not take away sin. It's only symbolic about the one who would. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist calls him, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is saying to Peter, look, someone has to die. It's either going to be you or I'm going to do it. You don't understand, Peter. And third, our sin and our salvation desperately needed it. Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 2 that he bore in his body on the cross our sin. But that comes later. In this moment, he has very little understanding of what it, is, what it means that he just said, you're the Christ. And I wonder for us, if we sing the songs and proclaim the name but have so little understanding of what it really means. Then that brings us to the fact that I think the reason Jesus calls Peter Satan is not because Peter has a demon or is possessed. It's because Peter unintentionally is communicating a message that's completely opposite to the will of God. Think about it. Jesus just said, this must happen. It's for this that I came into the world, to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And Peter is saying, no. It's the opposite of what God wants. In a way, Jesus is saying to Peter, I've heard this before, Peter. I've heard this before. I was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan himself. And the third temptation was, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, isn't that what God wants, all the people of the world, to know his love? But there's no shortcut. The way of mercy and grace is through the cross. You can't go around it. You can't skip it. I've heard this before, Peter. You don't realize what you're saying. You do not have in mind the things of God, Jesus says, but the things of man. How crazy. One minute, my Father revealed this to you, things of God. The next minute, these are not the things of God. This brings us to the cost. In the next section, Jesus expands his teaching by calling the crowds to him. So get the scene. He's at Caesarea Philippi. His 12 disciples are around him. He's teaching them about who he is. They're confused. What do you mean die? This doesn't make any sense. And then he calls the crowds to come closer because this is a crucial moment. Let's look at what he says in verses 34 to 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
What's the title of our series we're in? Anybody know? Following the King. If anybody would. Anybody would? I mean, do you ever think about your life that way? He's a, it's an invitation. If anyone is serious about following me, coming after me, do you get up in the morning and think, I'm following Jesus today? I mean, I've got my Google Calendar and my list of to-dos and the, and the agenda, but I'm following Jesus today. Today, I'm following you, Lord. Do you, do you think that? Do you pray that? I don't always. I work in the church, for crying out loud. And sometimes I get up, I got all these things to do. But it's about me. Do you think about, I, I, would, I want to come after you today, Jesus. He says, Jesus says, if, that's, if you're serious about that, if you're not just playing at this, if you're serious about following me, I'll tell you how. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If anyone would come after me, well, anyone, anyone, deny yourself. What does that mean, deny yourself? I don't think we have very little understanding of what this means. This is not Jesus telling us to deny our personality, to lose your individual uniqueness, to stop being you, to live an extreme life of asceticism detached from all earthly things. You might need to give up some things, but Jesus is not saying you have to stop being you and you can't have any pleasure or attachments in this life. He's also not talking about self-denial as a form of self-discipline. He's not saying, you know, self-denial like a spiritual version of go on a diet, start working out, get yourself in better shape, pull yourself together. That's not what he means by self-denial. He's not talking about denying yourself stuff. Well, that's right, I ought not to have that. I probably shouldn't buy this. I mean, if I want to be a Jesus follower, I've, I've got to keep, you know, I shouldn't have all these things. And again, he might call you to give up some stuff, but that's not really what he's saying. He's saying you must deny yourself. Deny yourself. The self, the part of you that wants to have its way, that part in you and in me that wants control, that wants to call the shots, that wants comfort and security and good things for me and mine, the self. If you want to follow Jesus, if I want to follow Jesus, that part of me and that part of you must be denied, must be dethroned, must be denounced. There's only room for one on the throne of your heart. And if you're there, he can't be. That's what he means by deny the self. It's a hard teaching for 21st century Americans. We don't like this. I know, you might think, oh, I get it. No, I, I think you don't like it, if you understand it. It ought to be hard to, to, to really, what is he saying to me there? I read a book a couple months ago by Carl Truman, a church historian and theologian called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a long, academic, heavily footnoted, but it's worth the slog. Uh, let me read to you a portion out of the uh, first chapter. He, he writes like a scholar. The intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary. Huh? Prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual values as oppressive and life-denying, places a premium on the individual's right to self-determine, that is, to define his or her own existence. And all these things play into legitimizing and capturing what we might call the spirit of our age. 
You hear what he's saying? We live in a world where self reigns, where self is king, where I, the right to self-determine who I am, what my life means, what I'm going to be about, that's, that's for me to decide and nobody else. Nobody can tell me different, including you, God. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deal with that. The Apostle Paul puts it this way when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people's will, people will be, the first thing he says, lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unreasonable, slanderous, without self-control. He just goes on. But the first thing he says is, understand this, pay attention. There's going to come a day when it's going to be hard because people are going to love themselves above all. I wonder what he's talking about. Well, every era has been like that. Ours is no exception. And I, I know there's a lot of talk today about um, be good to yourself. Practice self-care. Don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself a break. Use good self-talk. And there's a place for that. The gospel is not calling us to a, a life of self-loathing. But here's the hard teaching. If you want to live the life God's calling you to live, the best thing you can do to yourself is surrender to Jesus. Not let yourself reign, but dethrone yourself and surrender to Jesus. This is what he means when he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Dallas Willard called that the law of inversion. Jesus is always saying these things that sound strange. The last will be first, the first shall be last. You must die to live, lose your life to find it. And then he says, take up your cross. Now, how many of you have heard that phrase used in church language before? My cross to bear. This is my cross. Anybody ever heard that before, expression? We've churchified it. We've made it Christianese. And we don't have any clue what he's talking about. Let me tell you what he's not talking about. When people say things like, well, I got this bad diagnosis. It is my cross to bear. My mother is, is uh, sick and it, it's, our, it's our family's cross to bear. My husband lost his job. It's his cross to bear. This relationship is in bad shape, and it must, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a, my cross. Gee, God is not in heaven going, your cross is cancer, and your cross is uh, a cold. What kind of God would that be? The cross Jesus is talking about is not the hard things that happen in your life. Newsflash, life is hard. Bad stuff happens. You can go through that stuff with the presence and love and mercy and grace of God or without it. But he's not arbitrarily deciding who gets a really hard cross and who gets a nice little one. That's not at all what he's saying. Take up your cross. What is he saying? It relates to denying yourself. Remember, when Jesus said, Bear, take up your cross, nobody used that as like a metaphor in first century Palestine. The what was the cross? An instrument of torture and death. No, it's a crazy thing for Jesus to say. We, it's churchified in our minds, so we don't get it. But nobody, nobody used that as an expression. He was the first. If in the first century, if you were bearing a cross, you were on your way to suffer and die. You were under the submission and subjugation of a power greater than you, and you were going to die. That is exactly Jesus' point. 
You, to follow Jesus, are under a power and authority greater than you. You're in submission and you're in surrender and you're on your way to die so that he could live in you. So that you could truly live. That's the upside down message of the kingdom. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a verse worth memorizing if, you, if ever there was one. Maybe Paul's life verse. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But, the, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a statement. To deny yourself and to take up your cross means you don't get to call the shots about your life anymore. That's a hard message for suburban America. Paul says, I'm not living. I've been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. And that's not a once upon a time thing. I prayed it years ago in vacation Bible school. It's an everyday thing. Denying the self taking up our cross. So, taking up our cross then is connected to denying yourself, meaning it's the way you put yourself to death. This sounds impossibly hard and not all that fun. Go in peace. <laughs> like if it just ended there, they'd be like, oh. <laughs> but it doesn't. This brings us to the call. The call. Jesus doesn't just leave us on our own without any help here. The call to follow him is filled, infused with amazing promises of what he gives us and what awaits us. This exchange, right? My life, for what? I mean, give up myself for what? He tells us. Let's look at verses 35 through 38. There's four fours. If you're a note taker, if you have your mark journal, you could circle these. Four Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's three promises contained in these four fours, uh, if you will. First, for whoever would, lose, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You don't save yourself. Jesus saves you. But his point is this. You cannot have the life God wants to give you if you're trying to earn it, if you're trying to grab it, if you're trying to build it. You see those posts? We all make them, right? I love this life we're building together. And I get that on a level. But you don't build the life God called you, has called you to. You surrender and receive it by grace and by faith through grace. That, that's how it comes to you. You don't accomplish it. You don't earn it. You don't save for it. In fact, if you're trying to do that, you'll lose it, the life he wants to give you. You might get the house and the boat and the 401k. You might not. Who knows? With this economy, you might. No, no, no. But you'll miss out on the life he wants to give you. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. So the first promise, you find your life, your true life. The second one, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What's your soul? We think of my, like as me, I'm this flesh and blood guy. Like, oh, this is me. And my soul, whatever that is, it's in there, it just floats up to heaven when I die. 
I go in the ground and my soul goes up there and, I don't know, wears diapers, gets wings and plays a harp for eternity, something, I don't know, right? But I don't know what my soul is. That's not the Bible's teaching. You are, are, are not this flesh and blood reality. You inhabit, Peter says, the tent of this body. You're going to get a new one someday, a much better one. Some of you need that more than others right now. But we're all going to get resurrection bodies, glorified bodies, perfected bodies. But we are souls, so much more than this flesh and blood existence. So if you're trying to accomplish everything that you want and live the, your best life in this little breath of 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever God gives you, you lose the essence of you, your soul. What can you give in return for your soul? It's priceless. So the first promise is you find your life. The second promise is you keep your soul. The third promise Jesus puts in the negative, for whoever is ashamed of me, so the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory. But if you flip it around, he's saying, you come into glory. Think about that. You want to follow me? Are you serious about following the king? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's hard. Yeah, yeah. But I'll give you life. You'll keep your soul, and you'll come into glory with me. It's a no-brainer. Jim Elliott said famously, died as a martyr. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why Paul says, when, he, when, when faced with debt, death, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You ever think about that? You want to kill me? I'm with Jesus. I gain. Oh, you want to let me live? I get to talk about Jesus. I gain. Oh, oh, you want to kill me? I get to be with Jesus. That's awesome. Oh, you want to let me live? Great. I get to talk about Jesus. That's awesome. He's an untouchable guy. I'm not really all the time. But I want to be. Jesus makes this promise so plain to us. Is he worth it? Is it worth it? Someday we'll find out just how worth it he is. I want to close by reading to you an excerpt from a Facebook post by a dear friend of mine, of my wife and I. Some of you will know, know her. Her name's Laura. Laura uh, used to be part of our church, still watches online, but she's suffering from bulbar ALS, and it's in its final stages. Her body is rapidly declining. She posted recently about uh, all the faculties and abilities she's lost, and then she finished it with this. Every night as I'm falling asleep, I try to go back through my day and thank God for every good thing and all the ways that he showed his hand, his presence, love, and provision. And that's always so easy for me. But the other night, in the middle of the night, when I couldn't sleep, I started thanking God for all the things that I can still do. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to breathe a bit easier today. Thank you, Lord, that I can still lift my head on my own. Thank you, Lord, that I can still walk with help. Thank you, Lord, that I'm still able to feed myself. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to type so much today. But then, as middle-of-the-night thoughts often go, I started thinking that all those things will be gone very soon. And then what am I going to do? What will I be thankful for then? It was in that moment that I heard God whisper to me, me. Be thankful for me. So I changed the wording to, thank you, Lord, that you have promised to be with me. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. Thank you, Lord, that you will heal me this side of heaven or the other. I change the I to you because God is always constant, no matter what our circumstances. At the end of the day, as my strength diminishes and my body slowly fails, I am more dependent on his strength and I cling to his promises. I've been deeply convicted when I, keep, when I read her post. If you know Laura, she's a woman full of faith and grace and love for people. Her mind is intact, but her body's falling apart. She's lost the power of speech and soon will lose other abilities that she lists. And yet in her suffering, she's able to say, I have him. Jesus said, you want to follow me? It's not a promise of an easy life. It's not a promise of, of, of financial wealth and prosperity and everything going your way. But you'll have me. For now and for all eternity. You'll find your life. You'll keep your soul. You'll be with me in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we all, we, we want other things. We want the stuff we think you can give us. We want the promises without the person. Forgive us for that. And we have wrong-headed ideas about who you are. We're trying to remake you in our own image. Forgive us for that too. And we're confused, frankly. We really don't get it. So teach us that you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are what we need. And in you and you alone, Jesus, do we find life and fulfillment and joy. Thank you that you're so patient with us. And even though we get so many things wrong, you continually call us to follow after you. I pray this in your name, Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand together?